going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, good evening and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in. And though last night I revealed that, well, for now seven, eight years, I would consider myself an atheist, I forgot to tell you that I was once Jesus. No, not in a past life. No, not in the sense of being part of the body of Christ, though we can talk about that. But I played Jesus in Godspell. And it was a learning experience. Godspell, I believe, is based on many parables from the Gospel of Matthew, some from the Gospel of Luke. And tonight we have a very special guest who is only well, specializes in the life of Jesus and the importance of how well, we imitate one another. His name is David Gornoski. He wants you to know that he is your neighbor. As well as an entrepreneur, speaker, and a writer, he recently launched a project called A Neighbor's Choice, which seeks to introduce Jesus' culture of nonviolence to both Christians and the broader public. So without further ado, David, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, and it's uh, great to speak with you. Yes, and you know, you recently wrote a piece about the importance of of who we imitate, who we see as our our models, our idols in some cases. I And I just realized when I was reading your piece after you sent it to me, I I literally in some sense imitated Jesus when I uh, performed in Godspell. I didn't even mean to, but it was a learning experience. And I remember after doing the finale where they do the Passion and the Crucifixion, I came off stage and somebody tried to walk up to me to say, you know, great job. And I, I kind of waved them off because I, I got so much into the character. I took it very seriously. I, I was uh, trying to contain myself. That you, when you go really deep into that story, um, the power of it is undeniable. And this is so much of what your work in A Neighbor's Choice is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much of uh, Christianity has been lost because of uh, Enlightenment style and even older type um, ideas that we've put into uh, what it means to be Christian. And it's turned off a lot of people that would ordinarily be very attracted to Christianity because they don't, they're not being sold uh, what the real Christianity kind of look like. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing when you have an open source thing like Christianity. And what I mean by that is um, Jesus gave us a choice, you know, you can be like him, or you can continue being like the way of the world. And um, even his own followers, who they, you know, they were around him for his entire ministry in three years, they were left head scratching the whole time, and they reported as such in their recollections of their accounts of what he did. Um, so they were puzzled, uh, and they kept missing the mark. They kept um, showing evidences where. They're fighting over who's going to have the power once he becomes the king of Israel. 
and how he kept saying, no, 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 that's the way of the world. We're not doing it that way. I'm inaugurating a new kingdom in history, and it's going to upend everything you think you know about power and love and, and, and the way that that actually works. And uh, so, yeah, even people who had breakfast and lunch and dinner with him every day didn't get it. So uh, I understand uh, why so many people um, uh, wrestle with understanding it, but uh, I think we need to do a really good job of, of, be, of trying our best to imitate Jesus so that um, we uh, don't have to uh, see people lose their faith for, for bad conceptions of the faith. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it absolutely does. And I want to touch on, before we continue uh, this story, how important the role of imitating one another is, what some might call mimetic desire. Uh, we've gone over this before when my show was only a weekend show, but I think it would be a good refresher for the audience to remind them how much the things we think are original ideas or the, the say, the artists we love. Tom Petty just passed away. Um, it, it, it does hit people personally, even though they never met somebody personally. And you kind of have a theory on how some of these things work themselves out through imitation. Yeah, well... The Bible shows that human beings, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And uh, we don't want to admit that we ourselves are sheep and that we tend to just kind of follow in the footsteps around us. Um, the idea that we just pop up into these ideas of, I want a BMW because I intrinsically love BMWs. This is absurd. And we don't like to admit to that because it's very humble that so much of the things that we make up of our, our sense of identity, our, our, our ideas, our ideologies, our religious dogmas, our, um, our workplace um, identity, all of that is wrapped up in actually copycatting and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And the Bible makes that clear abundantly through all of the different texts, even very ever more clearly with uh, Jesus' own uh, accounts of his life. So... Um, you know, if you ever see two toddlers in a playground, oftentimes there's toys everywhere. Uh, you'll notice that if one of them has a certain toy, the other one automatically wants that. Ask everybody who's watched kids play in a nursery or something that's noticed this, uh, where it doesn't matter if there's two exact toys. If it's the same exact Mickey Mouse doll, they want the one that the other one has. And then as soon as the, other, the, the second child starts pulling the child, the toy away from the first child. The first child didn't really care about the, 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 the toy at first, but now his desire is incited by his neighbor's desiring of the object. Now he wants it really bad. And that tension uh, creates a rivalry, and which creates envy and covetry, covetousness, and all the things that uh, we're warned against uh, becoming slaves to. So... That's really important to understand the Christian system that you know is we're not autonomous little islands unto ourselves. We are shaped by mom's parents, our peers, our friends, our rivals, even the people we think, you know, I can't stand that guy. I don't want to have anything that we were around him. If everybody looked at the, they would say, actually, you're starting to look more and more like he or she. And so even our enemies, we tend to, because of our, our, the nature of humans. Well, and I actually um, just ended up with a 
a BMW Z3 96. It wasn't something I was actually looking for, but when I went into the used car market, it was cheap. And I think I'm more than willing to admit that I was, there was an impression made on me when I was a kid when James Bond and Goldeneye pulls up in a Z3 BMW. And so, and when I think back, maybe that's why that car I ended up with, you know, popped into my mind. Oh, that's so cool. That's so interesting. That it, it isn't just, you know, the car puts a smile on my face, not as a status thing. It's more, um, I enjoy the, the wind in my hair, so to speak. And I have these long locks now, but the status thing almost makes me uncomfortable at times where, uh, you get people flashing lights. I had a guy stop me in the grocery store and just start talking about, you know, very luck, you know, fancy, expensive luxury cars. Just this weekend, I said, "Man, I don't have any idea about luxury cars." But he assumed, just based on how I appeared in that vehicle, that I was just like him. It, it's interesting how this plays out so often. It plays out in everything, you know, like, uh, why do we all decide to buy houses and get in debt? Why do we all use Facebook? Why do we all, and then we don't use Facebook. You know, we used MySpace, and then everybody used Facebook, and it was like a herd instinct. Uh, why do, does everybody talk about a keto diet? I remember I was, <laughs> years ago, when it wasn't really as trendy, uh, I was doing the ketogenic diet, and it wasn't as well-developed, and there wasn't as much science to back it up. And I remember I felt like a, so lonely because there was hardly anything out there, uh, you know, and everybody thought you're weird for doing it. And now it's like all of a sudden, it's certain there's a certain critical mass that hits, and everybody is talking about keto. People that you would never even hear about talk about such a bizarre diet just a few years ago. It, they talk to me and they're like, "Oh, of course, of course, it's the only way to go." And I'm like, "What? Where does this come from?" And these people are ordinarily rational people. They're very smart, well degreed people. Blah blah blah. But yeah, we all are copycats, and so that copycatting nature gets us into trouble. You know, why are we all atheists now? I mean, not even just atheists, but just why are we all rather secular? Because yes. that's what's in fashion, and and people don't want to admit that. But you know, there was a time when it was very fashionable that everybody was a Christian, and people people don't really understand how much of what they do is actually just kind of um, playing out the scripts of those around them. You know. Well, I tend to agree with you, and. I think there, you're not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing. It can lead to bad things. This is just kind of how the world works. Right. Um, and it depends on who or what we imitate, uh, how we behave as copycats, um, what we end up creating. Is there room in your idea of this imitation that you know maybe somebody will imitate their understanding of a person or some idea they'll carry out, but they, they don't create a copy that's exact so this creates variation this allows for new sure. ideas yeah i mean there is a room for innovation but it's always under the because you gotta remember like if you come up with a painting that's really distinct but it's different it's a type of surrealism no one's ever done it before well your desire is still in a vacuum of it's not in a vacuum i mean you still have to perceive that other people found success or satisfaction or or a sense of well-being by painting. And you saw other people 
innovated and they came up with something new. So you say, I must innovate. So you're still copying even when you do something innovative, right? So right. we're still in that kind of matrix. And that's just what the Bible says. All we like sheep. And so we don't want to hear that word. We're like, oh, that's what everybody else is. I'm not a sheep. Hmm. But that's the whole point. That's the whole jokes on you kind of thing. Like the person that thinks that I sheep is the one most likely to be totally uh, enslaved by the desires of those around them and, and caught up in this kind of man, this kind of false sense of uh, self that uh, really is going to throw them for a, for a loop because that's why certain, like, so to get into it on a deeper level, the Bible would help us see that, you know, that's what sin is. Sin is the idea that you desire uh, these, these things that other people have, but, but they don't give you satisfaction because when you attain them, they don't give what they per, what you perceive them to be giving the person you were uh, desiring. You know, so if someone has a yacht, and you're like, I just got to get something like that, and then you get it, and you have that sense of emptiness, like well, this isn't giving, this isn't scratching my existential itch like I thought it would be. Uh, then there's this sense of dread and this sense of uh, I've got to desire more and more and more. And that's kind of the idea that sin is like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. It, it's a it's a false it's a shortcut to heaven that leads to hell, and that means that you know it, it has some promise of good, but because you idolize that desire and you consume it rather than cultivate it and understand it for what it is, it controls you to the point where you never get what you want. So that's why so many people like. Never have satisfaction when they, you know, they, there's like an adultery or something like that. They see somebody else's girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and they really covet that um, person because maybe they they're impressed by who they perceive how much how many people desire that person. But when they have that consuming mindset, once they attain it, they've idolized that person, they've objectified that person, and that person can't give them satisfaction. Because that's something that only the transcendence can provide, a sense of fullness of the being, you know, that we all want. Does that make sense? It, it, it absolutely does. Um, you know, I was talking last Friday uh, bringing up Hugh Hefner, and there was actually a guy named Neil Strauss who... Uh, initially began reporting on the so-called pickup artist community a few years ago, and then he became one because he had said he had found all the success in the world by modern standards, but he had never been able to talk to women. He ends up learning all these psychological tricks, many of which actually rely on uh, things you are talking about, things like as what they would call social proof, that if you are seen as having status, these sort of things, um, you are more attractive to others. And he ends up where he, you know, he's sleeping with all these people, and he's starting to feel empty. And he ends up meeting Hugh Hefner, who recently passed, and he asks Hefner, when does it end? And Hefner says something in response to, uh, akin to, it, it doesn't. And Hefner isn't exactly happy when he gives this answer. Um, and I've heard in some commentaries, Hefner turned sex, if you will, into the church. Um, that we can turn money into the church. We can turn so many things into these idols that we fall into or fall under. And I'm wondering how, to get back to the point of this essay you sent me, how does Jesus sort of... Uh, uh, how does he enter into this matrix, into this process of imitation and mimetic desire? Yeah, well, he says that he's the only person in history that 
says, I'm a total imitator. So he openly admits that. He says, I'm just imitating my father in heaven. And uh, so imitate me imitating the father. And so there's this perfect uh, flow of imitation in which there's no sense of rivalry that develops. Whereas with everybody we meet in life or every every great tenure, author and philosopher, whatever you read or hear about, there's always this sense in which they want you to imitate them, but not too much. Because mm-hmm. the moment you imitate them too closely, now you're almost taking a part of their sense of identity away. So, for example, even like just like um, <clears throat> if you're at a job and you want, a, you want uh, new people who are new employees to really learn the mastery that you, that you have in that company. But what if they master it better than you? And soon, everybody in the workplace, they forgot about the distinct difference and uniqueness about you because there's a guy that can do, or a guy or girl that can do it better than, uh, than you. And so now your sense of self has been kind of eroded. Or even just turning it on me. I, I advocate this, this kind of concept, and I, and I share it with people in political circles and libertarian circles and conservative circles. And I want people to imitate what I'm talking about. Right. But if I had someone do it better than me, I probably would be a little sense of self has been removed. Like, oh, wow, I did it too well. And now this other person's uh, taken off and everybody's listening to him about these ideas. And, oh, man, I didn't get any of my uh, just uh, uh, honor or my just... Uh, credit right we right. always have that right right <laughs> right i came so up even, with that first yeah yeah, yeah or, or we want everybody to get into our favorite uh uh band but then if too many people are into the band we're like, it's not cool anymore right so we, <laughs> there's that push pull that we have where, where imitation works and so with with jesus jesus is saying don't imitate your neighbors because they're never going to give you what you want because what you really want is oneness with your neighbor and so, you're, so the object that your neighbor has or the status that they have is really just a stand-in for the fact that you desire to be your neighbor. You desire to be one with your neighbor because there's something about your neighbor, whether it's a boy or girl or anybody you see, you say, man, there's just something about what they have represented in that status or that object that if I could just have that piece of that, I would feel content in my sense of who I am. I'd feel whole. And so Jesus is saying, it's an illusion. You really just want to be one with your neighbor. And the only way you can do that is to be one with God. Because God is the transcendent that, that, uh, that provides the being for all humans. And their reflection of, 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 of his being is what gives that little glimmer of being that we find somewhat attractive in our neighbors around us. So if we lose, if we lose our desire to totally consume and, and, and be totally... Uh, fixated on what our neighbor has, then we lose that envy that we always kind of have and resentment that we always have that builds up and causes conflict in the world. And we can have a sense of gratitude instead, where we feel completely grateful and full and complete in what God has given us, what we have in this moment, right? And that gratitude, rather than envy, creates all the world difference in terms of our, our, our peace and life and the way we can treat others. Well, again, folks, we're talking to David Gornoski. He just launched a project called A Neighbor's Choice. You can reach out to him on email, david at a neighborschoice.com, david at a neighborschoice.com. And you've, you have work published on fee.org, wnd.org, 
uh, and uh and many other places. I imagine you have radio experience. Now, I want to move to this idea of, I've noticed it in politics. It's this idea of the scapegoat, that what is bringing people together so they don't turn on each other is to turn on a certain group or person. And Jesus does something to this mentality, but the floor is yours to kind of uh, flesh this out, because I'm, I think, doing it eloquently. Oh, well, Jesus... um Jesus is the first story, the, the gospel stories of Jesus' life, are the first story in history that totally deconstructs, and that just simply means opens up and explains something that was hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's actually a phrase from the scripture. Hmm. And that thing that was hidden since the foundation of the world is the way in which societies formed unity and a sense of belonging and a sense of identity on a collective basis and that was based on sacrificially killing or casting out by throwing off a cliff or throwing out into the wilderness a common enemy or a group of enemies that provided a sense of catharsis and unity. So when it, you feel this every day. Everybody feels it every day. So you go, uh, you're in a restaurant with a friend and your guys are getting into an uh, argument and... Uh, you don't know where this rivalry is going to end. It's just escalating and irritation and annoyances. Well, you pick a scapegoat. You say, you know, I think it's this restaurant. They've got garbage food. Let's get out of here. And that gives a sense of unity. Oh, wow. It's not you and me. It's this person's. It's the third party's fault. Or um, the night before uh, you came to work, your your favorite candidate lost. So you come uh, to work and you're mean to your rival employees and you kind of um, bark at them and, and put them down, and you, that's a scapegoat. You're kicking somebody else to make yourself feel better, or you know you're kind of mean to your dog because your job is not doing well, or uh, you blame Donald Trump for all your problems and you blame him for being a nasty, horrible person, which is like half the country's doing right now. Right. And the half the other country, the half the other half did that for Obama for the last the, the, the previous eight years. So these scapegoats provide special conduits so we can all channel our sense of guilt our sense of shame, our sense of resentment and anger, and even our violent energy onto a common victim that gives us, when we when, when we all, that's why everybody on Twitter puts these little hashtags, so they all want to show that they're unified. I am not with Donald Trump. See, look at me. Mm. It's just the same as, as old religions, you know. I am part of the Inca gods, uh, you know, because you were doing a misfit a slave to the god of the sun. See, I am a proud Incan. I'm a proud Aztec. I'm a proud Norse uh, pagan. I'm a proud, a proud Germanic uh, uh, pagan, and I sacrifice to these gods of Odin and so forth. All that is is the same thing we're doing in politics today. And, and so it, Jesus... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and ironically, as you've pointed out, you also have folks who say, I'm a proud Christian of whatever denomination. Right. Yeah, and that, that's because... Uh, and, and so much of that is because, you know, they're not understanding. And Jesus predicted that. He said, you you know, you know the scriptures, but you don't understand. You don't see me. So he kind of predicts what's going to happen, which is people obsessed with the text. They want to memorize the facts about Jesus and then show off their special little doctrines and dogmas and how their, their, their mastery of those mental precepts make them somehow closer to the divine than their neighbor. 
Meanwhile, they do nothing to actually imitate Jesus. And so to imitate, imitate Jesus is very clear. He says it over and over again. Do not resist evil with violence. Wash the feet of those below you. Um, uh, turn the other cheek. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Um, you know, all these different concepts, he teaches and he lives them out. Who will cast the first stone? This is all about renouncing your claim to violence, renouncing your claim to scapegoat and enemy other, and not use violence to get your way. And so that's the foundation of liberty. That's the foundation of what we call the liberty movement or libertarianism or all these other things. It comes from Jesus Christ. He started this movement. And uh, it's, it's um, something that has been infecting the West for 2,000 years and now the whole globe because of globalism. You know, the globalism spreads the West ideas, which are infected by this, um, by this way of being that Jesus started. Now, I want to push back a little bit in, in this way. Is there anybody Jesus was imitating? Yeah, I mean, he was imitating the Father, his Father, who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, look, God is not what you think he is. God does not demand outward um, whitewashed tombs. And he uses that term. So the idea is God is not obsessed with your mastery of mental models about him or uh, your exterior uh, features of righteousness. He's interested in mercy, not sacrifice. See, sacrifice is the idea that, you know, you can have a pecking order. And remember when Jesus said, uh, you know, when you come into a room, don't take the, 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 the nicest table, the nicest seat at the table. Right. Take the lowest seat. That's the whole concept of, of, of rendering um, your sense of entitlement over another and letting go of that, sacrificing that. Well, and I find that most folks would be very uncomfortable if they followed this, uh, well, uniformly and, and in a disciplined manner, that they would worry about things like, you know, war and others beating them. And is there no room for self-defense? Is there no room to defend Yourself, or is it? I'll put it this way: Is it better to suffer an injustice than risk su suffering an injustice on others? Yeah, I think, I think with, within Christianity, you have a room for self-defense. Now, primarily, I think it means defense of those who are being physically attacked themselves. So that would include um, if you see uh, an elderly lady, for example, being accosted or attacked across the street, that's within your Christian virtue to be able to physically restrain the attacker and keep them physically restrained to protect the victim. And so from there, we can extend a collective right that if we all have that moral right individually, we can then go ahead and create a collective right called law that would enshrine that right and say, okay, we all morally agree if we find someone trying to assault someone, trying to, you know, take advantage of a child, I mean, you can't sell an AK-47 to a child. That's, that's, right. that's an invalid contract. So that's a form of violence. You're endangering a child. Um, if you uh, are, are, if you are engaged in a fraudulent contract, you're selling beachfront property in Nebraska uh, to little old ladies, that's, that's a violent act. You're deceiving them and stealing their money. So... If you're not, if you're not, uh, you know, defrauding someone, if you're not stealing, if you're not trying to assault, and you're not trying to harm a child, 
there's no thing we should do to, we should not put a single, you know, we should not touch a single hair on your head, right? Right. And that's a Christian axiom. So there is a place for the protection of the of the weak, but it should be always for the protection of actual violence. The moment we say we can preemptively, well, you know, uh, if I let you do that drug, you could get high, and theoretically you could barge into my house while you're high and, and cause trouble. So therefore I'm going to ban the actual drug. Well, that's a preemptive um, concept that is totally chaotic. Because you can extend that for everything. And in right. fact, that's what's happening right now. You know, that's what I'm trying to teach the church is like, look, you know, you may be scared about giving your giving freedom back to your neighbor by allowing, allowing them to use drugs or whatever. But that's the same principle that the state uses uh, to try to curb your free speech in the church to make it so that it's considered hate speech for you to preach on certain topics in the pulpit. Or it's considered hate to, you know, hire who you want to hire for your organization that's religious, right? right? So once you see the principle that the mob has the right to scapegoat anybody for any nonviolent behavior, that principle is completely in the hands to do whatever the mob wants. And, and as we know, voters are very fickle and very prone to passion. And that chaotic wielding of law is totally antithetical to what Christians should be participating well, and I was saying last night that though, and we can talk about this after uh, a quick break here, David, that though I would consider myself an atheist, and maybe I'm just wrong about that, maybe it's uh, fashionable, or I am reminded, though, uh, by old friends that I was asking odd questions very early in life, um, that to me, it seems like in the modern era, whether in the United States or in Europe or in Beijing or in Moscow or in Pyongyang, that the state in some ways serves as the new god for people and the doctrine is sort of given down by technocrats or experts, social scientists or psychologists. Like this recent shooting, everybody's sort of looking into the, the, you know, the psychology. There had to be something insane with this man. And why didn't the right. government protect us from it? Um, and it, it's, it's something that has me very troubled. And I'm, I'm searching um, I don't say I'm an atheist in the sense that I'm militant and trying to prove everybody wrong. It's, it's more in the sense that I had to back up for a second and say, if I'm being honest, uh, this is the best way I can present it. And then we can talk about positive things I believe in. But for now, as we go into the break, uh, somebody that I've wanted to imitate very much in my life, uh, Prince, I can't get the sign of the times vinyl off my record player folks so excuse me pardon me but there's this one song and i remember trying to imitate prince when i uh, performed for a catholic uh, youth group in college uh, performed this on acoustic guitar it's called the cross and it's uh, probably my favorite christian song out there and maybe it's because i idolize this man too much, but I think it's a great message. Coming back, we'll talk more with David Gornoski. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Stay tuned. Stormy night 
to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, so humbly named after myself. The song of the day is The Cross, by Prince, but by so many others. And my guest this evening is David Gornoski. He just started a project called A Neighbor's Choice. And David, for folks interested in, in really reading more of your work and reaching out and engaging with you on your project, A Neighbor's Choice, how can folks do so? Yeah, well, my website is aneighborschoice.com. That's aneighborschoice.com. You can email me at david at aneighborschoice.com, or you can just Google my name, and you'll see my body of work that I write at uh, fee.org and lewrockwell.com, affluentinvestor.com, theamericanconservative.com. I write at different places. Uh, whoever will carry this message, it's all part of the A Neighbor's Choice Project, which is simply to try to engage anybody, including a lot of secular and, you know, as I do, these secular groups, on the importance of Jesus for solving. Uh, we need to imitate Jesus. We need to understand his life. We need to study his life and imitate his way of, of being in order to solve so many of the pressing issues of our time. Um, and so, yeah, it, I encourage everyone to take a look at the work of uh, a French Catholic uh, anthropologist who has been an influence on me named René Girard. He recently passed away in 2015, but if you want to look up René Girard on YouTube, you can see some interviews of him, and he goes into some of the ideas I'm talking about in regards to how Jesus dismantles scapegoating. And I think, Joey, the way you talk and my engagement with you, I think you are a Christian in the sense that if you were a big fan of Prince, you'd be a Princean, right? Oh, absolutely. And so if you if you if if you if you imitate the the idea of love of your neighbor, of mercy rather than sacrifice, of forgiveness rather than vengeance, and, it, and that doesn't mean you have to have you know being a Christian is not I got it. It's a process. I remember hmm. there's a quote by uh, I think it was Maya Angelou, and he she said every time someone tells me. I'm a Christian, I say, already, uh, because uh, it's a process, right? It's a, it's a whole life journey of trying to let go of this false sense of self that allows us to get into so much unnecessary uh, envy and uh, disappointment in life and uh, lack of peace and gratitude that really gives us that sense of meaning in life that, that, that I think Christianity provides. So you don't have to have all of the doctrines mastered. 
that's the wrong idea about Christianity. That's there, and that's important to look into those things, but really, Christianity helps us see what it means to be truly human. And so, um, so many people, I tell people, you know, they read 600-page Steve Jobs books, but, uh, you know, because they want to get, you know, he was a genius, he made the iPod, he made the, you know, the movie Toy Story with his company Pixar. He did so many great things, and we all say, well, maybe I can get a little piece of him you know, if I can just study his life and I'll learn some insight about what he did and I'll become a great leader myself. Well, what about Jesus? I mean, I know it's not as fashionable, but I mean, empires were fought in his name. Hospitals were built. You know, the greatest scientific discoveries by people like Sir Isaac Newton were done in the name of, please, I want to I want to imitate my, my, my hero Jesus, my Lord Jesus, my master, just to all that word means. So... You know, this is a guy we count our time in, 2017 A.D. Yes. And yet people are like, oh, I don't want to hear about Jesus because that's just what I heard in Sunday school. Well, sometimes the greatest truths and the greatest transformative people are the ones right under our noses. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and where I... Where I find myself uh, differing, say, with uh, fellows, that people I really do consider friends, but I... I find the story beautiful. I find everything you are saying resonating with me. But people ask me, what do I positively believe, not what I don't believe in? And I'd say fundamentally we're storytellers. We're the folks who kind of make sense of the stars or try to make sense of the stars. um, That we're all in the gutter, but we're all looking at the stars, as Oscar Wilde quipped. Or, Or we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. And to me, it's... It's not a matter of, uh, is it literally true? It doesn't matter to me. It, it reminds me of a debate where I believe Christopher Hitchens pointed out that, you know, he doesn't know if Socrates actually existed in history. But to him, it doesn't matter whether or not that's true. But right. say if somebody, and I don't, I think Jesus was a real historical person, don't get me wrong. But say somebody showed that wasn't the case. I think a lot of people would be having a bad day if that showed up. Do you see where I'm drawing the distinction? Yeah. So you, what you say you're an atheist, what does that mean? Do you not believe in God, you're saying? That's the issue you have? The idea that a creator would create this? Yes. This I'm more uh, in a position of I don't actively believe and I don't know. I'm more, so that's like agnostic then, right? Yeah, agnostic in the claim of uh, knowledge, but when somebody asks me, do you believe in, in God, I first come back and say, well, what, what do you mean by God? And often when they, I get different answers, and usually I, I don't end up saying yes, I say no, mm-hmm. as an active right. belief. But I do believe that there, essentially, eternity is now. It's not something that starts after we die. It's something we're caught up in. And it is an ongoing process of us trying to create language and understand uh, ourselves. So do, you feel like it's a, do you feel like it's just this feeling that there's too much chaos in the world for it to be designed in, a, in a, an intentional way? Is that maybe where you're coming from? Or is it more like a rational thing? Like, I just, I don't think that that the universe needed a creator to exist. Is that, where, do, where do you get your uh, that interest, that, that, that idea from? Uh, it's it's almost like everything has always existed and and changes. Um, the, yeah, it's uh, like the idea of spontaneous order. Um, right. That, you know, who would create the creator? I guess is the the classic argument. Right. 
Well, there's this kind of weird distinction that people have made. Again, it's kind of a new idea, and you'll see it popular in, in, in some Christian circles that there's this hard distinction between spirit and matter. And I think that may be where you're coming at, because it's like, uh, well, there's the material world, and then there's the spiritual world. But I think they're kind of uh, one one thing. And so, you know, um, I do believe God is a person in a sense that he has a personality, but I don't think he has a gender. We just use the word he to, in a classical sense. But, um, yeah, I think I think if you read the work of Rene Girard, uh, uh, particularly his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, you may be surprised at, at uh, some of the reasons why I think you might be closer to being a Christian than you think. But that's okay. I'm not here to sell you one way or the other. I'm just here to say I think you, you, you sound so much more... Here's where I'm getting at. If I have an atheist who's like, I'm not sure about God, but I really want to imitate Jesus and wash the feet of my neighbor. That's a Christian. That's a functional Christian. And so if people do that, and that means not using violence, not saying, oh, let's get the state involved and criminalize people because they have guns or they have raw milk or or they have... uh, and they're, they're introducing an unregulated drug by, that the FDA doesn't have control over. All these crazy ideas that we just allow to happen, right? If, you're, if we're imitating Jesus, we won't allow that to happen. Right. We won't vote to use violence against our neighbors. That means we're, only, we're not going to be voting for the perpetuation of these laws if we're Christians. And it means if we're in a jury duty, we're going to vote not guilty on anybody who's a, a nonviolent person. And so those two things you can do, engaging the state, is critically important for imitating Jesus. So if you're doing that or willing to engage in that, that's what it means to functionally be a Christian. Imitate. See, Christian just means imitator of Jesus. It's like a little Jesus. Hmm. That's all that means, you know? Well, in, in many ways, I think it's because I was raised Catholic, uh, and I agree with a lot. And, you know, I, I know I have to let you go here, but... I. When you say there's no real distinction between spirit and matter, I even almost agree with that. It, it's more for me is why do we have to personify this greater force um, right. that allows for all this? I think that's where the question would be. But I think that's uh, – I know you have another interview upcoming, so I don't want to keep you much longer. And, uh, folks, David Gornoski can again be found at a neighborschoice.com. Yes, I, I I appreciate you having me on the on the show, and again, I just want to encourage people to to look into uh, the work of Rene Girard, and I think you'll be encouraged by it. I think you'll be challenged by it. You'll wrestle with it, and I think we can come to a place where we don't have to um, be in bondage of ignorance of our own uh, mimetic or imitations of of our neighbors. We can start start being grateful, not envy driven. And from there, we can learn to let go of our scapegoats. And when we do that, we can really heal this country. We can really heal our neighborhoods. And we can really uh, have a sense of peace and beauty in this world. I think it's possible. And so I thank you for having me. Well, and David, to that, I say as unironically as I can, amen. And thank you for being on. These are the exact type of conversations I've been wanting to have on this show. And you are helping me to do that. Um, Thank you, sir. And have a great night. Thanks. You too. Once again, folks, that was David Gornoski. Again, you're listening to the song of the day, The Cross by Prince from 1987's Sign of the Times.